My name is Leonidas, and this is Informed Dissent. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 16 of Informed Dissent, the podcast where we push back on the culture of groupthink, challenge the narrative. I appreciate you tuning into the show. Happy Friday to you. I hope you're having a great week. It's good to be back to it after being off last week. So I actually want to start off the show today by saluting the great Walter Williams, who sadly passed away last week. He was an intellectual giant, someone who should be a household name and is criminal that he's not. As I said on Twitter, I owe a lot to him for helping to shape my thinking on a variety of topics from economics to liberty to race, you know, just being an inspiration for pursuing truth against popular opinion. He wasn't concerned with what the popular narrative was and wasn't persuaded by those who demanded he toe the line or embrace intellectual conformity. And that's really what this podcast is about, you know, challenging the status quo, seeking the truth, regardless of whether or not it's popular. Dr. Williams' contribution to the world cannot be overstated. If you haven't read his articles or his books or watched some of his speeches, I would encourage you to do so. I talk about the impact of Thomas Sowell a lot on this show, but Walter Williams is right up there with him and has been just as impactful. And funny enough, they've been best friends for a long time. So definitely check out some of his work when you can and send some prayers and positive thoughts for his family and friends for comfort and peace as they navigate this difficult time. He will certainly be missed. Okay, so for today's episode, I wanted to actually discuss economics a bit and the importance of having a basic understanding of economic principles and, you know, just just the role of government in our society in general. And I'm certainly not a guru by any means or on the level of Dr. Williams or Dr. Soul at all, but I do recognize how vital economics is to understanding how the world operates and understanding what kind of constraints exist when you're trying to solve problems. And it goes well beyond money. I mean, money is only a small part of what it is we're talking about here, but it's decision-making, how we make decisions and allocate resources. We talked a little bit about this in the Liberty episode, how there's no such thing as a free lunch and how everything is a trade-off, right? There are no real solutions, only trade-offs. You must pay some cost no matter what. And the only question is whether or not that cost is tolerable. When we talk about economics, most people think that cost means money, but it extends well beyond financial transactions and currency. You can consider these principles in pretty much everything you do. For instance, if you decide to watch a movie that's three hours long, the cost of watching that movie is what you could have been doing for those three hours instead. It's an opportunity cost. That's how much that movie costs to you. And that isn't good or bad, necessarily, unless the cost is substantial and intolerable. For instance, if you know your grandmother, who you love dearly, is dying, and she has three hours left to live, the cost of watching that movie, instead of spending those hours with your grandmother, would generally be considered to be too high and intolerable, and you wouldn't do it. At least I I hope you wouldn't. But if the cost is tolerable and your grandmother isn't dying, 
and maybe you're giving up, I don't know, reading a book or hanging out with your friends or cleaning the house or whatever possibilities might exist that you could be doing with those three hours. If you find that cost tolerable in exchange for the movie, you will watch the movie. Of course, much of that may depend on how good the movie is, but all of this is economics. We're talking about taking a scarce resource, in this example, our time, which has alternative uses, and determining how best to allocate it. Probably the most important law of economics, other than the idea of trade-offs, is the fact that all resources are scarce, even if we like to pretend like they aren't. Even when something seems to be abundant, it is still scarce, because there's less available than people ultimately want that must be distributed through some sort of economic system. Lionel Robbins, a British economist, liked to define economics as the study of the use of scarce resources, which have alternative uses. Once you conceptualize that truth and you understand scarcity and the idea of trade-offs, it changes how you view politics and the role of government. At least it did for me. For example, when we're discussing something like healthcare, you recognize that hospitals, doctors, nurses, medical equipment, medicine itself, these are all scarce resources. There is not and never will be enough to satisfy all people's wants. And their availability must be distributed through some sort of economic system. Some sort of rationing. They can't be available to everyone at any given time. It's impossible. Many on the left want to do this distribution by government fiat. And that is certainly one way to do it. The government decides who gets to see the doctor or nurse and who gets that medicine or medical equipment, where they can get it and when. I mean, that's an option. But government has proven itself time and time again that it is horrendously inefficient and wasteful with allocation of resources. And that that isn't even mentioning corruption. And not just our government, but every government that has ever existed in the history of humankind. And I mentioned this last episode. This is because government is wholly incapable of knowing what is best for every individual or what every individual wants at any given time. All one needs to do is look at the state of Medicare and Medicaid to see that this is true. If you want to understand why healthcare costs in the United States are so ridiculously absurd, look no further than that. There is a reason healthcare costs began exploding after 1965, which happened to be the same year that Medicare and Medicaid were signed into law. That's not a coincidence. There is no free lunch, only trade-offs. Everything has a cost. And putting government in charge of healthcare, even partially, has had a massive one, clearly. So when people say the solution is more government, I'm just baffled. Because it's like a willful blindness to ignore the role that government is playing in this current situation. And when you understand that resources are scarce, and that all solutions have a cost, you can understand what might happen when the government distorts the distribution mechanism that is, prices, and begins allocating those resources through legislation instead of through price systems. It's not good. Waste is abundant. All kinds of procedures and tests are done that aren't needed, and many procedures and tests that are needed aren't done. All kinds of equipment is purchased that isn't needed, while equipment that is needed isn't. It's a mess. 
because the market isn't allowed to operate freely, which would move resources to their most valued uses and force organizations to give up resources that are being wasted or used inefficiently so that they can be used elsewhere. The market seeks this equilibrium unless the government intervenes. So if the government interferes with the market and subsidizes healthcare, there is no real reason to avoid wasting those resources, and that ultimately helps drive up the cost. In working in healthcare, I've seen it happen up close. Patients who need a powered wheelchair can't get one, while a, while a patient who can walk gets approved. Patients who need further therapy in a rehab facility get denied, discharged from the facility to go home long before they're ready, and they suffer the consequences of that while a patient who is doing much better than them gets approved for more therapy. It's nonsense. And it happens with private insurance, too, for the same reasons. It becomes a vicious circle. Resources are scarce, and when you distribute those resources inefficiently through some arbitrary method of allocation, you will end up with these kind of results. We shouldn't even need private insurance to pay for non-catastrophic stuff. But all of this has been normalized because we've allowed the government to distort the market and bloat costs, which drive up prices. We see the exact same thing happening with government intervention in higher education, involving subsidies and government-guaranteed loans. Why do you think tuition keeps skyrocketing? Think about it. If the government guarantees to give you a certain amount of money that will cover your costs, do you have incentive to control your costs? But I get it. You know, we have a problem in our society with feeling the need to be in control. Everything needs to be controlled. Can't just let people do what they want to do, right? They might do something we don't want them to. They must be controlled. Liberty arguments aside, it does seem on the surface to make more sense to try to control how people allocate resources, to try to keep them from wasting them or to try to control prices to make things more affordable for more people. It's an understandable impulse if those are your true intentions. But the opposite actually happens when you try to do that. I know it seems counterintuitive, but the more you try to control these things, the more problems you actually create. The system works best with minimal intervention, the best regulator is actually the market itself. And I'm not just talking about healthcare, I'm talking about the entire economy. Rent controls, for example, contribute to housing shortages. Minimum wage laws contribute to low income workers being priced out of the market. Business regulations reduce competition and allow mega corporations to grow, as well as incentivizing lobbying and cronyism. Attempting to exert control over individual economic decisions ends up having all kinds of unintended consequences. And this is what I encourage people to think about when discussing these things. Because you know, we often think of the economy in, in the macro sense as this giant, complex machine that needs to be guided with some kind of political steering wheel. But when you actually look at it, it is the millions upon millions of individual economic decisions people deciding individually what they want and need for themselves and engaging in voluntary mutual transactions with other individuals doing the same that makes up the economy as a whole. It's like when you buy a loaf of bread for a certain price from a certain grocery store, that transaction sends a ripple throughout the economy 
which signals to producers what that bread is worth to produce, to package, to ship, and to be stocked on that shelf. If no one buys the bread, same thing. And that's only bread, or one particular brand of bread. We're talking about millions of products and countless resources that are used to create those products. No government can possibly have all the knowledge needed to control that and do so efficiently. It's not possible. Not even with one thing. If you've read Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell, he gives a pretty straightforward example of how this works. He used an example of milk products like cheese, yogurt, and ice cream. If the demand for cheese goes up, then cheese producers will also demand more milk to produce more cheese. Because of the law of supply and demand, which states that increased demand leads to increase in price, this will drive up the cost of milk. That means that the prices of ice cream and yogurt will also go up as those producers will have to cover the increased cost of milk. Additionally, dairies will be incentivized to produce more milk, which could mean buying more cows or using more cows for milk instead of for meat, which could also mean less cowhide and end up raising the price of baseball gloves and so on and so on. One single event can have a substantial impact on the overall economy. And no one person controls it. No one can control it. Sowell likes to say that the government doesn't understand incrementalism and cannot implement laws based on incrementalism and can only legislate categorically. And this is really the most fundamental problem, in my opinion, when it comes to bridging economics and politics. The free market operates incrementally and responds to supply and demand forces, while government and politicians generally operate categorically and proclaim that one thing is more important than another. We see this clearly whenever the government attempts to ban something, like AR-15s, for example. It ignores the forces and incentives that underlie the problems that they claim they wish to solve, and instead categorically claim that a certain product is bad and try to regulate it. This doesn't solve the underlying problems, and it often creates even more problems, not just with guns, but with anything you can imagine. Alcohol prohibition in the 20s really put this on display. The underlying incentives need to be addressed, but the government doesn't do that. And currently, rent control is another great example of this, because the government cannot know what each individual wants or values in an apartment, uh, nor what each individual landlord wants or values in a tenant, or materials, or maintenance, or whatever it may be. There's far too much to consider and way too many variables. Each person can assess their own situation individually. But attempting to assess everyone's situation at any given time, it's not possible. So legislation that is put forth is always one-size-fits-all, with broad-sweeping categorical mandates that don't take into account that people do not make decisions that way. A potential tenant and a landlord enter into a mutual transaction based on what each of them want and agree to in that moment, which signals to the market that particular value. If the government comes in and interferes with that, forcing one of the parties to agree to terms that they would not otherwise agree to, what might the outcome of that be? Think about it. If you own a house and you value it at a certain price in order to cover your cost and make it worth your while or whatever whatever your personal incentives might be, and the government forces you to rent it out at a much lower price, what might happen? You might cut costs elsewhere. We see that happen often. 
upkeep and maintenance go away and apartments begin falling into disarray. Landlords can't afford to do it or they find that the cost is not worth it at such low rent. What else might happen? They, may, they might not rent apartments at all. We see that happen too. And prices and supply move in tandem. When prices go up, so does supply. So when prices drop, less is produced. So if you artificially drop prices, you also artificially drop supply. Just common sense. Why would more landlords want to get into a market like that if there is no significant profit incentive? Why would existing landlords want to continue if they don't find it worth it? They wouldn't. And demand also goes up because apartments are now cheaper. So now you've artificially inflated demand and artificially deflated supply. And the result is a shortage. Of course, other things go into it like zoning laws and other regulations. But the economic law stands that if you place a price ceiling below market value and demand goes up, supply won't be able to meet that rise in demand and you will have a shortage And just thinking about it with common sense, generally people tend to buy things they wouldn't have bought when the price is lower or buy more of that thing than they otherwise would have. So demand rises with lower prices. Under regular market conditions, maybe somebody would rent an apartment with a couple roommates, but under rent control, each roommate might rent their own apartment because they can now afford it. And the consequence is less housing is available for others. And we've seen that happen as well. This is what happens when government sticks its nose where it doesn't belong. Distorts the market. Now, you can make whatever moral arguments that you want about rent prices and whatnot, but the fact remains that resources are scarce and you can't do anything about it. That isn't a moral statement and no amount of moral posturing will change that. It's a universal truth. People will always want more than there is available. Always. That means those resources must be rationed one way or another. I think about the toilet paper shenanigans that went on with the COVID panic, which I still don't understand why people were panic buying toilet paper, but to each his own. But there was clearly not enough toilet paper to meet the rise in demand. Stores decided to ration toilet paper by limiting how much you could buy. Same thing with hand sanitizer. Now, you may agree with that rationing system, and that's fine, but it's still rationing. First come, first serve. People that showed up early were able to get it. People who showed up late were not. Is that fair? I think how you view it depends on whether you got there early or late or how badly you felt you needed toilet paper, which need is subjective, by the way, but that's that's another conversation. So in the first come, first serve system, people were still taking toilet paper, even though they didn't really value it as much as other people did, like somebody that was legitimately out of toilet paper. They value that toilet paper much more than many of these other people. So people who valued it less were able to get the toilet paper, leaving less of it available for others who valued it more. That is not an efficient allocation of resources. It also didn't didn't properly communicate how much toilet paper actually was needed to be produced because the prices did not accurately reflect demand. That likely means that much more toilet paper was produced than otherwise would have been drawing resources used to produce toilet paper away from more valued uses elsewhere in the economy. What prices would do, and should do, is rise with demand. And people are forced to make economic decisions. 
they're forced to economize. People would have to decide if paying the higher price is worth it. They would have to truly value it at that price. And another thing higher prices do, or should do, is bring in more sellers, which opens up competition. Like I said, in a free market, as price rises, so does supply. And this increased competition drives prices back down. You're not going to be able to keep selling something at a higher price when someone next door is selling the same thing for much cheaper. Now, people say that raising prices in these situations is price gouging, and they find that to be immoral. They see it as taking advantage of people. But it's a rationing system that provides incentives for resources to go where they're most valued. And they're going to be rationed no matter what. And you can find moral fault with any rationing system because no matter what you do, there will be winners and losers. There is no way around that. I think it was Dr. Soul, or or maybe it was Dr. Williams who used an example of flashlights. If there was a sudden rise in demand for flashlights, a family of five might buy a flashlight for each person, meaning less flashlights available for others. But at higher prices, maybe they decide to only get one and just share, leaving more for others. So which is moral? They're going to get rationed one way or another. And price provides an incentive for those resources to flow where they are most valued. So the way I see it, people individually can make individual decisions about cost and price and value. They don't need government to hold their hand. And those millions of individual decisions interconnect and feed off of each other, forming a complex economic system. Which, by the way, there was there was this TikTok video of this girl talking about money, and I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. But you know, she was baffled at the idea that a five dollar bill and a fifty dollar bill are different amounts of money. Basically, saying that they're just pieces of paper and basically worth the same, so it makes no sense. And the whole idea of printing more of them leading to inflation is just ridiculous. Because why don't we just not let it inflate? Makes sense. The money isn't real. It's all a subjective construct. Why not just say it is whatever we want it to be? Now, she's right. Uh, Money is essentially just a construct that we made up. And on the surface, what she was saying about inflation might make sense until you really start to think about it. Yes, paper money or numbers in your bank account conveyed through a piece of plastic is all completely arbitrary. We're not even using the gold standard anymore, so the paper is not backed by anything, really. It's just pieces of paper. So we could feasibly print as much as we wanted to, make everyone millionaires. Why not? See, this is one of the reasons I like to talk about economics outside of money, because it's easy to get hung up in this trap unless you remember that economics is about decisions that people make in regards to allocating scarce resources resources that have alternative uses. First of all, I I should point out that she didn't understand why a $5 bill and a $50 bill were worth different amounts, but clearly it's representational, right? I mean, so it's so you don't have to carry around five $1 bills or $51 bills. I mean, that should be obvious, but still it, it is just numbers. I get it. Okay. So value is completely dependent on the decisions that people make in mutual economic transactions. That $5 bill does not have some kind of inherent value. The value of that $5 bill is what you can exchange it for because someone else values that $5 bill 
more than they value whatever it is that they're selling. And you value whatever it is that they're selling more than you value that $5 bill. That would be true whether we're talking about pieces of paper or tennis shoes. I actually remember in school, people used to trade their shoes. That's an economic transaction. Those shoes didn't have inherent value. The value was determined by the people engaging in the economic transaction. Back in the day, people used to barter, trade in a few fish that you caught for some clothes or something. That's an economic transaction. In that system, you value the fish less than you value the clothes. And the clothing seller, vice versa. That's what determines value. Not the fish, not the clothes, but the decision between the people who are selling and buying determines the value. And those decisions ripple throughout the economy and they impact others and what they value in their economic decisions. See, once you stop thinking about it as purely monetary, then it begins to make more sense. Now, what about the inflation point she was trying to make? Why don't we just not let it inflate? Well, what causes inflation in the first place? Well, one thing that leads to inflation is artificially increasing the money supply without any increase in productive output, as well as increased consumer demand. Because like I said, the money does not have inherent value. It's about the exchange. And if there's more money floating around, then that money is going to be worth less to people. But printing money and trying to control the system can lead to disastrous outcomes. We can look at Venezuela as an example of what happens when you do this. So early on, Chavez had put price controls on food and medicine and ended up driving a bunch of companies out of business in Venezuela since they couldn't afford to operate at such low prices. So the country had to rely on imports, which the government paid for. And when oil prices eventually dropped, the government lost its main revenue stream and so began printing money. Yeah, well, prices skyrocketed. And the solution to that was, of course, to print more money. By 2018, inflation was 65,000%. Insane. What about Zimbabwe, where the government decided to print money to pay for the war in the Congo? According to the Cato Institute, the inflation rate became 98% per day, meaning prices were essentially doubling every 24 hours. They ended up having to abandon their currency altogether and adopt the U.S. dollar. In November of 2008, their inflation rate was 79.6 billion percent, with a B. And that's only two modern examples. There are many more. So, so we pretend like printing money had nothing to do with this hyperinflation? Why didn't these countries just not let it inflate? Clearly, it's not that simple. While the paper is essentially meaningless, the value it conveys and the value that we mutually agree upon is not. And when you try to manipulate that, it does not go well. That is not to be taken lightly. The market operates best when it is left alone. Unfortunately, many people don't see it that way. There's almost an obsessive desire in our country to exert control over others. And we've seen that in full force during this pandemic. And even before then, the push to censor, control people's speech, control the ideas that they're allowed to express, that they're allowed to hear, the idea that controlling people, making them do what they want, or preventing them from doing what they don't want, is the way to achieve their goals. This is a common tactic 
especially among the political left. But, but the right is not exempt either. They do it too. It just happens to be an overdrive right now with the left. The pandemic has really exposed this tendency, as well as how detrimental it can be. There's a sense that if we don't use force and control what people do, then people will be free to do things that we don't want them to do. But as I mentioned in the Liberty episode, that is the exact point. People should be free to do things we don't want them to do, provided they aren't violating someone else's rights. That is liberty. Not only because it is the moral thing to do and forceful control amounts to tyranny, but because that forceful control doesn't even work. The saying is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that is absolutely true. Intentions don't matter. Outcomes do. What is the benefit of good intentions if the outcomes make things worse? You say you want to save lives in the pandemic, and so you initiate lockdowns and shut down small businesses, which in turn permanently close millions of those small businesses and cause massive spikes in deaths of despair. In the process, you failed to even stop the virus. Does it matter if you had good intentions? Maybe it makes you feel better. But ultimately, intentions don't translate into outcomes. If you ignore the incentives that exist and what the underlying economic issues are, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean financial, then you'll almost certainly fail. And as I mentioned before, it is pretty much impossible to understand the unique situations of every single person that lives in this country in the incremental way that they make decisions in their daily lives. That's why passing broad-sweeping legislation is generally not the answer to something we don't like. You need to adjust the incentives if you want to change economic behavior. And government is just not good at doing that. And then, of course, you have the economic liberty arguments, which assert that even if the government were able to somehow effectively control the market, it is still wholly unethical to tell someone that they cannot engage in freedom of association and voluntary exchange. That should only be limited by the question of whether or not the particular behavior is directly violating someone else's rights. And I've said that many times. And I've mentioned this before, but the great economist Milton Friedman often made the point that the role of government in society should be to provide a mechanism by which we can engage in voluntary cooperation and do things together that cannot feasibly be done alone. National defense being the primary example. And I'll quote Friedman here. He said, Government has three primary functions. It should provide for the military defense of the nation. It should enforce contracts between individuals. It should protect citizens from crimes against themselves or their property. That's it. That's the role of the government. And he goes on to say that when government, in pursuit of good intentions, tries to rearrange the economy, legislate morality, or help special interests, the costs come in inefficiency lack of motivation, and loss of freedom. Government should be a referee, not a player. And he's exactly right. We've gotten to this point in our society where many people believe that the government is responsible for them and government is the solution to their problems. What many people fail to realize is that government is often the cause of the problems that exist in society in the first place. Like I pointed out with the rising cost of healthcare and college tuition, the student loan issues, the fallout from the pandemic, all of this has been a direct result of government intervention. And that list is long. We would be here forever trying to go through all the problems that government has created. 
Just pick an agency, pick a law, trace it. Look at the outcomes, the second and third order effects. These things are hardly ever talked about because the only thing that matters to government is the supposed intentions and whether or not those stated intentions will get them elected or re-elected. Cynical, yes, but self-interest drives government decisions, not public interest. Self-interest drives the free market too, but what makes it effective is that the market distributes rewards and punishments. If you do things in a free market that people like and want more of, you get rewarded with profit and incentivized to give the market more of that thing. If you do things in a free market that people don't like and don't want, then you get punished with losses and incentivized to stop doing that or do something else. Not so in government. If it were the case that government paid a cost for making mistakes and issuing bad policy, including things like outrageous spending and excessive waste of resources, we would see it corrected automatically because it would be in the government's self-interest to avoid those things, just like it is in the corporation's self-interest to avoid them. Corporations that don't have government officials in their pocket, that is, but I digress. The main point is that the government is driven by self-interest and pays no consequences for screwing up like a business would. And as Dr. Soule likes to say, it is hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. You know, this is obviously a massive subject and we could fill hours with it. I just wanted to touch on the basic idea of economics and the role it plays in our lives and the role the government should play, ultimately. I plan to do more episodes and discuss things like taxes and the Fed, modern monetary theory, Social Security. I, I mean, there's so many different directions to take it. But ultimately, everything comes down to the importance of liberty. Because people, when left to their own devices, are perfectly capable of making their own economic decisions and doing what is best for themselves. As long as they aren't hurting someone else and violating their rights, they should be allowed to do whatever they want to do. Because, like I said, what emerges from those millions upon millions of voluntary economic transactions is something extremely complex and substantially superior to anything some bureaucratic committee could possibly come up with. No matter how badly you want to control it, you can't. Not effectively. And even if you could, you shouldn't. Because you don't have the right to tell other people what is good for them. They should get to decide that for themselves. Thanks for listening. I'm Leonidas, and this has been Informed Dissent. If you would like to help support the show through donation, you can do so at donorbox.org slash Leonidas. D-O-N-O-R-B-O-X dot org slash Leonidas. I really appreciate that. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, give it a five-star rating, share with your friends. Also, follow me on social media at Leonidas Johnson. And check out my website at LeonidasJohnson.com. And always remember, do your own research, challenge everything. Don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe. We'll see you next week. God bless.